Dr. Black, thanks for being here. Thank you. Your primary academic area of focus is studying how current students of color achieve success from early childhood education all the way up through higher ed. Yes. How long have you been researching this topic? Uh, researching this about almost 10 years now. Um, and an interesting shift from my primary academic training, which was in literature focusing on 19th century slave narratives and how those who were enslaved uh, survived and in some cases thrived. And part of the connection between survival in the mid-19th century and survival in uh, for African-American students in contemporary American education is what are the obstacles to face and the overcoming of those obstacles and then thriving in spite of obstacles and what kind of supports are necessary. What have you discovered in your research about the types of resources and supports that can help students of color succeed in K through 12 and into college? There's going back for a second to uh, the integration of schools in the late 1960s, 70s, and 80s, uh, integration that was prompted by the Brown v. Board of Education decision. But one of the things that happened is as you get African-American students in the majority schools, the ideas and the, the prejudices of the instructors and the staff do not necessarily change. So those attitudes, the negative attitudes about Students of color, particularly my focus with African-American students, African-American identified students, is the negative attitudes found in the larger society. So what does help black students, especially in predominantly white schools, but in all schools, are staff and instructors who believe in them and who are culturally relevant so that when, uh, especially little black boys, are a little louder uh, and sometimes a little more energetic, that's not taken as a disciplinary need, uh, maybe because they're more excited about the lesson. That's the positive aspect. Uh, and this goes with um, teacher training, staff training, staff sensitivity, staff comfort in multicultural environments. So that's part of it, supportive staff, and then programs that support the staff to help all students, but then particularly focus on the behaviors and not criminalizing or demonizing or otherwise making energetic African-American behavior as a detriment. So that's part of it. And higher education is providing the spaces and support for African-American students. Part of what happens when students of color and African-American students arrive on a college campus, and any student arrive, there's a cultural adjustment from high school or your, uh, if you're homeschooled, to a large campus environment. It's a very different situation. It's, I like to say it's like landing on Mars where everybody speaks English but not the same English you've been yeah. taught for the last 17, 18 years. And there, I, I tell students even to this day, some of whom were graduating, say, I could never get into your class. I said, well, if you email me and let me know that you want to go into my class, I can let you in. Uh, college professors are different than high school teachers and mm -hmm. we have a lot of more discretion uh, about who's in the class, the things that we teach, and how we teach them. But students don't necessarily know that. So for higher ed uh, undergraduates, it's accurate and sensitive advising. I had a discussion with a student um, who went to an advisor asking about a career option, and the advisor said, well, here's a book about it. And the student said to me that the book is not helpful. I just wanted an answer to the question. So the book may be helpful and it does have the answer, but an actual verbal answer, even if it's brief, even if it's like, here is the short part of it, and then here are more resources about it. Uh, it seems like a brush off to me. Well, in the advisor's defense, they did provide the answer. And it, and it may, may have felt like a brush off. And, and my own experience, I, I'm, I am a college dropout. Went to a, a university, large university in, in the Midwest and received horrible advising. And I went to my advisor in the middle of my first semester, say, I'm kind of struggling with these classes. And I said, well, who told you to take 18 credits? I said, you did. And one of the things, especially um, we're finding with students of color, is when they have a negative experience with somebody, they tend not to go back. And it could be overtly negative 
or it could be subtly negative like i didn't get the answer to the question i needed mm -hmm. and so then you are not a resource for me anymore um, so a lot of especially in higher ed is connecting students to resources that they will use i've taken and encouraged um, my colleagues to work in the cultural centers. I actually have office hours in the Black African American Cultural Center at CSU where I connect with a lot of students who are not in my classes but see a professor and say, hey, I'm having this trouble in class or can I do this? And I can connect them with the resource if not answer the question directly in a way that's their space and their comfort zone. So meeting students where they are. You hear that a lot in higher education admin speak and uh, student services, but as instructors, and again, from the professor's perspective, the instructor's perspective, and as well as a researcher, having the tools for the students when they need them and where they need them. Can you give us an example of what those tools actually look like? How are those tools different than handing somebody a book, which is one tool, but you're saying you offer different types of tools that are more effective? I follow the intrusive, what we call intrusive advising model, where I will ask about more than the particular subject. Academic advisors uh, tend to focus on the major that they're in uh, and focus on coursework and graduation plans and career work. Well. I do add, and, and some of them, this is, this is a generalization, but the, the job description is to focus on getting you through school, being successful in your courses, reaching a degree. The question also is why? Why do you think you want to be a doctor? Well, I'm going to school, all of my people say that when you go to school you should be a doctor, that's what it is. But if you have no interest in sciences or no interest in mathematics or more interested, no interest in the prereqs or the job, then you're not gonna be successful at that. So asking a why, a little bit more probing questions. And a lot of times it's asking, how are you doing in life? How is your adjustment to the institution going? How is your adjustment to classes going? You mean, uh, the, you mean these students have lives outside of school? Uh, well. That impact their, their school experience? I, I would like to think that beyond the, the 10 to 12 to 15, 20 hours that they're in class, the other hours of the day when they're not studying or preparing to study, that they would do something fun, you know, they have a... But our lives are part of our experience. Uh, yeah. Inside and outside of school or work, like it is a factor that has to be considered. It, it is uh, one of the things that especially first-generation students are facing uh, are housing issues. Uh, and this may be from living in the dorm for the first time with students who, let me back up. My research focuses on African-American students, but this is pretty much true of students of color. There's a time on your campus when you will be racialized where if you walk on the campus and you think, hey, I'm a student like everybody else, everything's cool, everything's wonderful, and somebody, may, it may be a fellow, another student, it may be a staff member, it may be an instructor, uh, will remind you or educate you that you are black or African-American or somehow other. And that can be devastating depending on who it is and the context that it comes in because it takes you out of the normal student body and new normal experience and that you're different before and this is a trend uh, that we've seen since the 2016 election where this idea of colorblindness and students will come in um, saying oh I'm not this I'm not that I'm just a person and then you have your racialized experience and the presumption is that you know what that history is and what that entails and what those stereotypes are and you may not know what you've been called or what you've been cast into. What is the version of black? I used to say, what's the difference between O.J. Simpson and Obama? They both start with, oh, they're both black men, but they're different ranges of the spectrum. Well, the stereotype is more towards the negative rather than the positive. So once that happens, the, this is when African-American students seek out help. And it may be from their peers. And if they don't have any African-American peers, they may not receive that help from the cultural centers or from black faculty and staff. And this is when advisors will send students to me, send students to the cultural centers, send students to other staff, 
specifically to like, okay, I understand what you're talking about. I understand what you've gone through, but I am here. And I say this often to students, I am here as your professor, knowing the experience that you are going through now and how to get through it. So connecting with staff who understand and just look like you. This is, it's underappreciated how much you are in an environment where people look like you and you don't have to explain yourself. Uh, a counterexample of that is we do a, uh, our department has a study abroad service learning trip to Ghana. And we went, this is pre-COVID times, I was kind of surprised that a lot of the students who had never been out of Colorado uh, were surprised to be in an environment where they were different than everybody else was around them. I said, well, this is what your African-American and Native American and students of color classmates are going through every day. And that's shocking and uh, unsettling to them. But this is sometimes a reality, especially after students uh, have been racialized on campus. We're kind of beating around the bush here. I mean, okay. The fact of the matter is that uh, our university, it's a predominantly white institution. The organization I'm in is a predominantly white organization. Mm -hmm. And so what does it mean to be an educator, an advocate, a professional uh, in a context that is different than a lot of the places where we grew up? And for that context, I grew up in the Bronx, spent a lot of time in California, Oakland Bay Area, L.A. area, and Chicago did graduate school. So coming to Fort Collins is both the smallest place and the least diverse place I've ever lived, um, as well as the least diverse institution I've ever lived. And that was an adjustment, the adjustment being when I'm in a classroom. And I had actually a former student email me saying how much he learned in the class and I, this is my African-American history survey class. And so I said, I've never been in a classroom that was 80% African-American. I've never taught a class at CSU that's 80% African-American. It may have been about 30 to 40% African-American, but not 80. But the perception is that mm -hmm. if you see one black person, there are more black people than you actually see or know. And the perception of how I am received as an instructor to students, and this is not unusual to have, students who have never had a black instructor ever in their career. Um, mm. So there, there is some adjustment there. Uh, how, on the one hand, it does take a, a bit of more concern about how I'm being perceived than I've ever had in my career. On the other hand... What do you mean by that? Uh, my facial expressions sometimes are, are taken out of context. Uh, are you mad? No, I was just concentrating. Hmm, what are, what are you thinking? I am thinking about what you said, not negatively or positively. Uh, when I raise points, are they, uh, is the tone correct? Are you perceived as angry? In which case, then they can be easily dismissed. Uh, and especially when, and this goes for students and staff and faculty, especially when topics of race are brought up, the eyes turn. For students, we call this the onlyness factor. You find out that you're African-American in the classroom. And this is from the introductory composition class to the math class to the science class. When something about race comes up, all eyes turn to you, including sometimes the instructor. So, and this is, this is offsetting and outputting. And this happens in, you know, from first year meetings to graduate meetings to meetings that we have uh, as faculty and administrators. It's probably an unconscious bias, would you say, um, to do that action? I would, l it would be nice to say it's unconscious bias, but knowing that you, you, you recognize that there's something different in the room and that your reaction to it is to point out that instead of be inclusive in that. So I, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give the buyout of unconscious bias because you feel your head turn. If somebody drops something in a classroom and you hear it then, or drop something in the meeting and you hear it and you turn your head, that's a reaction to something. But if somebody, something mentioned race and you turn to the black person in the room, it's a similar kind of reaction to it. So you're acknowledging that. And then what's the next step? Do you say, I hear your concern? Uh, do you say, sorry, I didn't mean to look at you that way? Or what is the acknowledgement? Because we see you turning at us. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. Is that if the 
pen drops in the room, that pen doesn't feel the eyes yes. on it. But when you're the student in the room, when I was the student in the room, mm-hmm. when you're the person in the meeting, you feel the weight of all of those eyes. And I just feel like the rabbit that's like, I'm not going to move. I'm trying not to move. But And there's something for students. It can be the reason why it can be devastating is because you're no longer in a learning mode. You are then cast as a role of a teacher. And I have a, a daughter who's going through schools in Fort Collins. And she at some time, um, she, is, she is the daughter of two uh, black professors. So she is prepared at some times from first, second grade on to discuss issues of race. But why should you have to do that as a second or third grader? And then as a student in the class where you're trying to learn these subjects, when this, then you have to educate the instructor. Then do you get credit for educating the instructor? Do you then uh, get help with the lesson that you missed and the rest of the class missed? Are you somehow compensated for filling in for the ignorance of the person who's turning and looking at you and not knowing that information? And the answer is often no. Often no, yeah. And the question then is, this can be devastating and has students changing majors and leaving institutions. Are there any advantages to being a black student or a black faculty member or professional in a predominantly white institution? Long pause here. Uh, I think there's an advantage to being a professional on the campus. I think there's an advantage to having a perspective that you can bring in and say, well, uh, when we're talking about, for example, the year of democracy, and then how do African-Americans play in that democracy? I said, well, we've been fighting for equal rights and civil rights and the promise of the Declaration of Independence since the words hit the paper. So these perspectives are, are sometimes offered, and I can say them as a black faculty, and I also have the advantage that my field is black studies, African-American studies, so I have the research and background to do it. But it is an advantage in the sense of this is a different perspective. When you talk about diversity, uh, diversity is different. The other definition of diversity is diversity makes you uncomfortable because diversity is you're with somebody or in a situation where you don't know what that other person is. You don't know, you know that they look different from you, uh, but you don't know how they are actually different from you. If you're perfectly comfortable with that person, then then you're, you're not really in a diverse environment. So we, people naturally seek out sameness and comfort through kind of uniformity or what they're used to, would you say? Right. Yeah, and that, that's uh, the Sesame Street used to have a game. Uh, one of the games was one of these things is not like the other. Uh, and it's just, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not going to get into that. But it is not unusual to be comforted when things around you look the same. So if you're a black professor on a white campus, then the times when the 20 or so of us tenure-track African-American faculty get together, uh, there's a different conversation we can have about what's going on on campus than any other time. Do you think people who go to school or work in much more diverse environments eventually get used to that diversity and become comfortable with diversity and in a way it makes everyone more comfortable or is that just a little too optimistic? One of the questions I love getting especially from people who come from more diverse areas and and come to work at CSU is like where's the diversity at? So when you're used to a more diverse environment and you come to a less diverse environment, it does make you uncomfortable. And I've had many majority faculty, white faculty, white staff come to me. It's like, where are the black people? Where are the students of color in Fort Collins? It's like, eh, not very many here. Not that I haven't looked. <laughs> a colleague, we were in an early faculty meeting and, and I, I, I cycle around Fort Collins. And he says, yeah, hey, I saw you. I think I saw you the other day. And I said, if you look, if you see somebody who looks like me in Fort Collins, it's me. <laughs> so the, the, the lack of diversity makes you stand out. And there are plenty of examples in that. When we were here earlier, my, my wife and I were in uh, Lowe's and, and we were in different aisles. And somebody says, you know, she says, I, I lost my husband. And the person in the aisle says, oh, he's two aisles over. So it's, it's being in a surveillance state 
in a sense, where you know you're always looked at uh, and you know what you say will be taken differently. Uh, so being in a diverse, those who are used to a diverse environment know, uh, hopefully, to take the statements and the actions equally, not just because they're coming from a person who's diverse or different. That's great. Thank you. I'm wondering if you put any thoughts around what are the, some of the upsides and what are some of the maybe things that slip through the cracks when we think about the ways in which online degree attainment can really support historically marginalized communities or specifically African-American students? The positive to online is it enables access that wouldn't otherwise happen. Um, there's a movement against African-American studies in certain parts of this country uh, that thankfully is not here yet. But there's so many of us that teach African-American studies, so having an online access makes it eat more available uh, to more people. The advantage then is, uh, the advantage to being a student enrolled in the class is that you're the priority for that professor, that instructor, while you're in the class. That's one of the first emails, that's one of the first comments. You, you, ha you should respond to as, an, as, a, as a professor. So that's the advantage. The disadvantage of online learning and solely completely online learning is there is a value in the conversations you have before and after class. There is a value to having conversations with classmates. One of the things I discovered pretty quickly when we all were quarantined is I had a class where there were, I'd say about six or seven students who would normally talk to each other before and after class and we're all in quarantine and I just left I just left the room open for sometimes an hour, hour and a half and they just talked as if I wasn't there every now and then they would they would say, Hey Dr. Black, you know, what do you think about this? But that connecting both to the instructor and to each other. Uh, that is the value of a classroom setting, whether it be online or in person. The online challenges is to create that space for those conversations. It has to be much more intentional. You have to say, hey, this is going to be a time when you can talk to me or you can talk to each other, and I will, you know, sometimes even, hey, I'll mute, and then you signal me for, to come back on. And that has to be intentional. The, the problem, even the problem I'm facing, is you have but so much time and energy to do this specific outreach. It's harder. It's, it's harder. It's harder because the online environment, it takes an intentionality to do it, uh, and the question of sacrificing do you give up a class session? Do you give up part of a class session to have these one-on-one -on -one or small group conversations? Or do you make it a, a, an, another time to do that? And then how is the instructor credited for it? Not necessarily credited financially, even though that would be good, but credited as like, hey, this person is doing specific connections to these students. This person is specifically touching base, and I do recommend this, with my students of diversity and students of color. And it can be from physical diversity, if you have, uh, where you have a, a, a translator, a sign language reader, an interpreter, then touching base with that student one-on-one -on -one so they can ask questions or you can interact with them in a more concentrated way than you can in class or reaching out to the, the again, my focus is on African-American students, but reaching out to the African-American students like, hey, how's it going? Some of this stuff may be difficult or I see, you know, you got a good comment here or you had a question here and doing that specific outreach. It takes time. It takes effort. Uh, where in a classroom, and I, and I do this, I, I will ask a student to come up and talk to me either before class or after class and say, hey, let's, let's touch base about this. Let's touch base about that. Uh, so that is a way of helping. In the workplace also, if you have diverse staff, reach out. Say, hey, how is it going? And I do mean how is it going as a black person here. I'm not singling you out, but I do want to touch base because I know this may be an offsetting environment. And just putting it that plainly and trusting the reaction. Like, no, this is, this is, 
this is a good space and I appreciate you reaching out or I'm not comfortable and these are the reasons why I'm not comfortable and your reaction to that reaction will judge that's an opening work an open and safe workplace or not do you think it's okay to reach out to specific people this is something I've struggled with I don't want to single out someone because of my perception of their experience but I also want to know what their experience is that's kind of a weird dynamic of you don't want to single someone out for the wrong reason or make them feel singled out because you want to know if they're being impacted in negatively but at the same time you can't get that information without reaching out to them so i guess is there a, way, a sensitive way or a, a better way of doing that yes uh how would you tell somebody that their zipper's down on their pants would you say that in front of a group of people or would you you know to a side it's like hey you're so you may go, yeah, you may, you may go aside. It's like, hey, I just, I, I really am concerned, and and then want you to be successful here. And how is it going? Uh, I talk about there, there's talking about classrooms being a safe space, especially with issues of race, class, gender. But I like to say that a classroom should be a brave space where you can bring up issues and feel safe in discussing them and hashing them out because that may not be anywhere you can do that. So the sa- the implication of a safe space is that you will be comforted and, and, and affirmed in your perceptions. But a brave space is you may be challenged in those perceptions in a way to help you see differently, to help you appreciate diversity, to help see that you're not, your interest in a thing is not in itself negative. We do want to be interested in people. We want to be interested in the subjects that we're talking about. We want to be interested in the well-being of our fellow citizens, hopefully our fellow our fellow beings. It's important to be able to have more difficult conversations too and not just brush those aside. Can I challenge the idea of it being a difficult conversation? Well, it's perceived as difficult, but well, it shouldn't necessarily be that way. The idea of a difficult conversation is telling my daughter that she is not going to get the RV that she wants me to buy for the last 10 years. It's not really difficult, but it's difficult for her to hear. Uh, If you think of talking about diversity as difficult, if you think of talking about these things as difficult, then it will be difficult. If you approach it with concern and honesty, I don't know about this, but I do want to find out about this. I want to have a positive impact. And also understanding that you don't know the history of that particular person. And this is, this we were talking, talking uh, Eric and I are about outreach in different areas. One of the particular things about outreach, especially with African-American groups, is you can't just knock on the door once and expect to be let in. Because... There's so many examples of somebody expressing concern at a moment, usually at a moment of crisis or change or something has happened. And the most recent example is uh, during the Black Lives Matter protests where I have a lot of colleagues checking on me. Hey, how you doing? What's going on? But the ones that I connected with were the ones that came back the following week and then the next week and say, really, I want to know how you're doing. Then I know that it wasn't a reaction to something else. It was a sincere effort. And then the relationship builds. So outreach is persistence. No, we have this program. We have these resources. And we really want to help. I know uh, Dr. Shawada's work in Fort Morgan, it didn't happen just knocking on the door once. Matter of fact, his presence there made it happen. His persistence present there, and that's that's how you do outreach. You know, I may have to to call on a student a couple of times, say, "No, really, talk to me after class. It's good. I'm not punishing you. I just want to know what's going on, uh, so I can help you." Persistence is key. Persistence, persistence is, key. is key. I think the other part was that relationships are key, right? Yes. And I think our racial identities are a big part of who yes. we are. But if the only time you're coming to talk to me is yes. to talk about the racialized component of my identity and we haven't had other conversations about how weather's going or how the job's going mm-hmm. and you, you're solely singling the racialized component, it's going to strike me as odd. And then it becomes difficult because I know that the only reason that you're coming to me is like, oh, there's a black issue coming up. And I'm the one to give you the answer. It's like, no. So then you feel pigeonholed and it's, it's just not a good thing. 
It's not a good thing. Uh, I I like to say, because I do do African-American studies, yes, I am the person to come ask about particular issues uh, because that's my field of study. But me as a person, I am more than black. And, you know, uh, Eric and I, we ride. I tend not to ride with him because he's a more serious rider than I am, and I like life. <laughs> but, you know, when we, when we talk, our conversation isn't about, oh, you know, you're Asian, I'm African-American, let's, you know, what's going on there? It's, there's there's other aspects to this, and anybody in the in the classroom, students, to each other, to instructors, coworkers, there's more aspects. There's the actual work that you do. Yeah, get to know the whole person. The whole not person. Not just one aspect of yeah. it. And, and, you know, more of a person than how they appear. And I think also the difficult, what is perceived as difficult, is sometimes being told that you're wrong. If you're not wrong every now and then, you're not reaching beyond what you know. And if you're not open to being educated, I don't want to say corrected, but if you're not open to learning something, then you're really not open to it. So... The, the idea of I am putting myself in a position to be friendly, to be supportive, uh, and I may not know how to do that. And learning is not always easy, and it shouldn't be. Learning should sometimes be confusing because it upsets what you already know. It displaces information or adds information that you didn't think was there. Where, in a sense... You come to college, uh, you come into the workplace, having gone through an admissions process or hiring process or a vetting process of some time. So there's a reason for you to be there. And as an, going back to African-American students, to be in a classroom and be told that you're only there because of affirmative action or you're only there because of a quota, which are very outdated concepts that persist through this day then that devalues your efforts and it devalues the work that you put in and it devalues you as a person. So, yeah, we are in the same classroom because we have the same set of interests, the same set of skills, the same set of abilities are similar uh, and acknowledging that. So when you approach somebody, it's like, especially I tell students in class, you need to connect with somebody else. And if you're the only African-American, if you're the only Asian-American, if, if you're only one, if you're the only transgender person, if you're the only queer person, if you're the only one with tattoos, whatever it is, that's your only one is, that's not a reason for other students to reach out to you and for you to reach out to other students. So working always has its ups and downs. Yes. There's times where we're right in highs and there's times where we find ourselves in lows. Yes. Uh, sometimes we're in lows because of the ways in which we are feeling marginalized or alienated. You've earned the right to be a mentor at this point. So for the uh, very few employees of color that we have, for the very few black identified employees that we have, as a mentor, what advice do you give them when they find themselves in those low moments to really maintain dignity, maintain enthusiasm, and uh, really feel respected and proud about the work they're doing on campus. This is where connecting with other people is very, very vital. One of the things about racism or sexism or being distinguished because of an identity is, because, is that it makes you feel isolated. There is a decision you have to make, a choice you have to see whether you're being isolated because of something you personally did or something that people perceive you as representing. And this is where the touch base with somebody outside of that environment, again, the mentorship. Uh, and it's also interesting that you say that I've, I've earned this role as a mentorship. It's being myself recognizing that. And I was in, a, uh, we had a, a luncheon, um, or a lunch, I shouldn't say luncheon, uh, for a voluntary meeting of black grad students and faculty and staff. Uh, where some of the new arrivals were then, as you're saying, Eric, looking to me as a mentor. I'm like, oh, that's right, I have been here long enough. I do know this institution, and I know some things and those ways to connect people and recognizing that about myself. But then again, that's, that's even with our relationship, as you've mentored me and helped me see a lot of things. Like, oh, okay, I can do this. 
the human is not a, a, a an isolated creature. I know there's there's the introverts, and I have a lot of introvert friends who I don't realize they're introverts until we get around other people. But you do have some need to connect with somebody in your immediate workplace and beyond your immediate workplace. Where at, at CSU is a large diverse, <laughs> sorry, it's a large institution. We're working on the diversity, but it's a large institution where. Knocking on doors, having people knock on your door, and being open to that. Uh, one of my colleagues I had coffee with yesterday, we used, he used to teach the class before mine, and I would come in a few minutes early and see his lesson, and he would stay a few minutes to see the start of my lesson, and, and now, we're, now we're good friends. So it's that kind of curiosity. I would never, never thought that, that he and I would be friends because in any other place in time we have no interactions, but being curious about each other. This is how I know that Eric is a serious writer, writer, and I, I thought I was a serious writer, but that, that's a connection we have. But also that we're, we're in the same workplace and have the, a similar interest in student success and people's success. Well, I think you're getting to a really fundamental part is curiosity. Some people are naturally curious. Some people naturally want to learn. They're naturally more open to other perspectives. And then you have folks, unfortunately, who are not naturally that way, or it's just it's a more of a, a leap for them. They tend to seek more of the echo chamber or what they're used to, or they stay in their comfort zone, and they don't want to be challenged to learn a different perspective so much. Or maybe they're just more reluctant to, or maybe they've had a bad experience. But the thing I try to push is when you get more used to learning and you lean into that a little bit more, you will be more comfortable and you will really start to see the value. Let me, let me rephrase something for you. I believe that we're all curious about something. Even those who have very strong perceptions, they're curious enough to have that perception. Where the challenge is, is for them to be curious enough to question where that perception comes from and who it's coming from and why they are promoting this perception. This email I got from a student a while ago, he was very clear. He was in my African-American history class, uh, but he was raised in the South in a way that is very white supremacist. But he's in my class, so he's like, well, where do these ideas come from? So the curiosity that I believe all humans have, hopefully it's expanding. And how do we expand that? So when I say I, I, I uh, for the last seven, eight years, when we started talking about Black Lives Matter and the, uh, the instant opposition to that as well, don't all lives matter? It's like, yes, they do matter. And we didn't ever say that they didn't. So when I say that I love myself as a black person, that doesn't mean that I hate anybody else, which is what it gets turned into. And the question is, why is that turned into hate? When somebody expresses love for themselves, love for how they are seen, love for other people, regardless of difference, how is that turned into hate? So that if I love something, then the inverse of that is hating that. And that's where the curiosity really needs to come in. How do you hear hate? when somebody expresses love and the will to survive and be equal and be seen as a whole human. How is that hate? So that's where the curiosity needs to be like, well, why, why do you believe that? And the real challenge, especially in an environment where our system is relying on testing and there's real stakes for getting answers wrong in the testing, you may have lower test scores and not get into institutions, you might not get the job. So these are real consequences. But this also is not encouraging of curiosity. Well, I got that answer wrong. But why did I get it wrong? What is my thinking behind how that answer came up negatively? Tests don't really reinforce critical thinking. And, they and, do not. And introspection is it's either one of these four answers. Mm -hmm. And it also takes a little bit to grade an answer that is not multiple choice. It takes effort to see where you're going and this is this is a challenge with everything being online and I all of my tests and assignments are now online 
So if I say, what does this topic mean? There is the answer that I've lectured about, the answer in the book, but what does it mean to you? So is this where papers and essays and things are really important? Yes. Even though some students really don't like that format? They don't. The, my experience is the students who don't like that format is because they're looking for what's the proper answer. And I say there's not a proper answer to the way that you're thinking about it. Show me where that thought comes from. I can see why you're thinking about something if you tell me how it came to be. And that's the hardest thing. So if you have a particular perception of people, say if you have your perception of African Americans is from music videos or TikTok videos... Well, they're curated to give you something that they think that you like, but not necessarily the full range of what it is to be African-American in this country. Mm-hmm. So not even not even the looks of it, because there are African-Americans who are very light and African-Americans who are very dark in every shade in between, every height and color and all of these different things. So where does that curiosity come from? All right, so we're pretty much in the same spot in our careers, given that we, we might be fortunate enough to have 10 or 15 more years of heavy lifting. What's success going to look like? Looking back, how will our education system be different? How will our university be different? How will our communities be different if you're able to accomplish the goals that you're setting out for these next 10 years? Part of my understanding and approach to higher education goes back to both black studies and ethnic studies and land grant mission that we are here to be part of the community you know you have your ivy league schools who are who are at a a different level and they will remind you of that level but we are of the community and the idea behind black studies is one to educate african americans about their history and the different fields and the different ways but also to educate the larger public about, as the boy says, lifting a veil so you understand the meaning of being black and all of its different variations um, positively because you already get the negative. I would like to go and really fully implement what the Third World Liberation Front was striking for in 1968 and 1969 at San Francisco State College, now San Francisco University, to really have open access for education. One of the things that I think Extension does well and Dr. Shawad is doing well is reaching out to communities beyond the urban area to where there's this big, large institution and that you as a farm kid or you as a kid in a, high, in a small high school or uh, way out in nowhere, well, this, this institution is not for you. It's like, no, it is. It really is. And then you have conversations with people you wouldn't otherwise meet who are interested in the subjects. We have general education classes that everybody's supposed to take, and this is one of the few times on campus where you're sitting in a room with people you wouldn't be in otherwise. The disadvantages of you treat it like it's just a class and you go in there and I need to learn the subject and get this grade and get out as opposed to I can learn not only the subject, but about my peers, the people who I'm going to be living with on this, in this classroom, on this campus, in this city and country with. And that's a, that's a time, and that's where you can connect with other people and really get the curiosity and learning. Uh, part of the, the genius of the military is everybody gets into basic training, and you are all soldiers, airmen in my case, uh, and you do have to meet people that you wouldn't otherwise meet. And the fear that you hear in why you don't, we shouldn't teach this subject, this is, this is offensive to me, this might hurt my feelings. Uh, the fear is that it doesn't hurt your feelings, but you start to empathize with perspectives you wouldn't otherwise empathize with because now you get to hear it and not have it be shouted at you uh, and really connect with people who are affected by it. So instead of turning to the only black person in class, you're like, oh, okay, now I see what you're talking about. And then we can have a conversation. The hope, again, in our as we reach our retirement and our, our the next generation of our students 
who are now in elementary and grade school and starting out uh, and, and take our jobs as we happily hand them off is that they really uh, are not faced with some of the challenges we're facing in higher education now and the negative perceptions about what we do in this. I always laugh when people say we're indoctrinating students. I said, I wish I could get students to read the whole syllabus. It's not indoctrination, but it is education and to become curious. Dozier talks about lifelong learning, but lifelong learning starts with being open to who's next to you. And that's what I really hope that CSU can become. Uh, and it does face challenges because you can look at the state and uh, the real differences between a relatively suburban area like Fort Collins and Denver and the other parts of the state that think that we are different. It's like, no, we a lot more similarities than you think. And that's where the curiosity I would like to for us to be able to do in our own careers. The real value in diversity and equity is removing barriers that make it harder for people who have the desire to contribute. Uh, and I always like to use the doctor who's going to cure you example. If this person who has the talent and the ability, but not the access to go to college and get medical school and go through all of that training and will maybe save your life one day. If that person is prohibited by something that we can prevent, then we've done ourselves a disservice. Uh, we're talking about the entrepreneurship. Well, part of being an entrepreneur is seeing things differently and who sees things more differently than somebody who's not grown up like you or in your environment, but has that ability and skill. If we're really pushing this idea of the American dream that you can come from nothing and create yourself as anything well, let's get out of the way of those who have the interest the desire and the talent and just need the training and the access and the, and somebody who believes in them or a system that believes in them this mutually exclusive idea that if, it, if it's open the door for someone it closes the door for somebody else is really dangerous why don't we have more doors to open so if you succeeded today mm -hmm. and you've made the listeners curious mm -hmm. and they want to learn more <laughs> where would you guide them for diversity education and equity resources uh, there are different projects and focusing on african-american studies as i do we talk about the 1619 project uh, there's a reason why it's demonized because it does show it's a mini history lesson, and I don't want to say many African-American history lessons, it's a mini history lesson, because part of the reason why African-Americans are defined as a group is because of the historical creation of African-Americans in this country. Before coming over from Africa, we were different groups, Shante, Zulu, Fonte, all of these different groups, and we came here to become black. There's a reason for that. Before coming here, there was no white, there were British and Dutch and French and Spanish and all of these groups and come here to become white. There's a reason for that. And it's not necessarily a positive reason. So learning about that 1619 project, the Zen Education Project is also good. Uh, and there are other resources on specifically in the last few years, anti-racism resources that are open, accessible, and validated. Uh, Ibrahim Kendi's um, anti-racist work. Um, I would be an anti-racist. There you go. I am struck by Dunbar's Indigenous People's History of the United States. Mm -hmm. I think I'm struck by Mills's The Racial Contract. And Not really publicly itself. I love The Racial Contract. Uh, and, we, and we can discuss it uh, as a nice piece of philosophy and really high concepts. But if you're coming at this from a public place and say, hey, I do really want to learn about diversity of the last, the, 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 the fifth book you would read would be The Racial Contract, because you have to, what about Omni Winnet? Racial Formations yeah, in the U.S.? Yeah, I think those are all, I agree. Mm -hmm. It's a great book. But I think that's probably f still falling within your critique of my answer as being <laughs> overly You academic. mean we're still professors? We, yeah. we think like professors? <laughs> and so... The reason I'm struggling to answer this question yeah. is that there are no how-to manuals on how to do community engagement or sure. how to uh, build trust or outreach measures, right. and it's 
I think largely because it's difficult. People say that community building is not rocket science. Like we know how to build rockets. We don't exactly know how to build communities. Right. So much of it is site specific, context, history specific, culturally specific. It's, so it's the ultimate. It's the ultimate by local. Yeah, and I learned by doing. Mm-hmm. I learned by jumping in and doing. I learned by uh, looking around and seeing. Uh, who's maybe doing this work in productive ways that I haven't thought of yet or I haven't seen before, and then asking questions of, like, how, do you, how did you make that program work? Your natural curiosity. Also, having worked with you, you also are really good about seeking allies and accomplices. So there are, and this is, this is where it's always helpful to know that if you are trying to do something more, there's somebody else who is thinking about it, trying it, or doing it uh, that you need to find or you can't see. So in Fort Collins, if you want to look at, there are two organizations that I know offhand that are working with African-American youth specifically in the K-12 system. Um, one is through the Black African-American Cultural Center on campus, and then there's a Cultural Enrichment Center in uh, downtown Fort Collins. So. Oh, nobody's working with black youth. Yes, there are people working with black youth. Uh, similarly for other groups, you know, finding what people are doing and then helping them or creating new resources so that if you have the effort and desire and the energy to do it, you can make it happen. And part of the, the answer to your earlier question about the dream of our careers 10, 15 years down the road is that these doors are these organizations and things are open so that those who follow us don't have to recreate it. And they can build on that and create, really, really make, make Fort Collins and Colorado places like, oh, this is where the good things are happening. Thanks for listening to part two of our series on diversity, equity, and inclusion. The Applied Podcast is produced by the Office of Engagement and Extension at Colorado State University. You can learn more about our programs and find additional resources at engagement.colostate.edu.